privilege, let me say, for us to be a part of your ministry. It's always an honor anytime we get involved uh, in a church ministry, and uh, I'm glad to see, well, I guess there is a clock on the stove, but I was hoping there'd be no clock so we can just go, But because uh, I usually, when I come to a new church work, one that's associated with the Shepherd's Network, uh, we, we kind of get into that thing, and uh, hi, Rebecca's phone, but anyway, uh, but uh, uh, we, we like to accomplish about four things. We, we don't come in here in any of a commandeering way. We come in really in an essence of, of coaching and help to be a part of a ministry. We come in under your pastor. Um, there's a process we go through that's been going on for about two months. Uh, it's kind of back and forth, and then your pastor was up and spent uh, a few days with us. So we really get to become a part of a family uh, in that frame of reference, and uh, with that, as we work through it, we actually have what we call it conferencing, then we go from conferencing to uh, kind of an, an engagement or more of almost dating each other, and then we actually have a marriage, you know, well, you guys have just arrived at a marriage, so, you know, and we don't divorce quickly, so uh, anyway, <laughs> but uh, so, you know, you know, we're in the marriage realm right now, uh, we, we, we have been involved now with 24 church plants. Um, 17 in the last four and a half years, where we developed the Shepherd's Network four and a half years ago, put it together as mainly a philosophy. Our first church was actually inner city, uh, Charlotte, where Ben is, uh, was our first church to actually be our trial and air balloon uh, that time. And uh, now we are 24 churches in, uh, with uh, 14 now are independent. They've all which is we're not a denomination, we're not seeking to create satellites. Uh, we believe the best thing we can do for a community is leave a good, solid local church in that community uh, with a solid leadership, uh, you know, with an effective set of values. And I'll share those full of values with, although that's my, not my message. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be in, in Acts chapter 2 just for a moment to explain where we're at as a church planning ministry and then go to to Psalm 119 to actually give you something that's the Word of God and more individualized because a church is, yes, it's a living organism. It's also an organization, but it's made up of living individuals, one by one. And the vitality of a church is really built not so much on an air or something that's mystic in a body, but it's built on individuals who make up that body and become one family. So I'll end it all with 119 Psalm with some what I would consider good advice, but I didn't give it. The writer of the 119 Psalm did, and he may not be the same writer that you think he is as I think he is, but I'll bring that up later. But uh, going back to the Shepherd's Network, many of our churches have started just like this in a home and uh, have, have gone on from this basis. Probably at this stage, 50% of the churches that we have started uh, are now in actual church buildings. But they're not church buildings they built. They're church buildings of churches that were going to sell their property to corporate America to have high-rises and everything else built upon them, and we come in and take over the property. Uh, there are literally thousands of church buildings all across the United States today that are uh, in the place of almost receivership. Uh, the congregations have dwindled, they plateaued. Some even where you had great ministries at one time where, where people got saved and people got nourished in the truth. But today, they've fallen on hard times and those communities now have no solid witness in them. 
you know. Or there's areas where there's no witness going on among the lost in that community. Now, that's important to me because I was not raised in a Christian home. I got saved when I was 18 years old. I was a senior in high school. Uh, I came from a broken home. Uh, I left home in ninth grade and then came back home in 11th grade to watch my father die and, uh, and then uh, got saved through that process. And then when he passed away, I had no place to live. So uh, I had to move to Minneapolis and finish my senior year of high school in Minneapolis at St. Louis Park High School. So I graduated from a high school that I only spent one year at, which is not good for an outside linebacker playing high school football. You know, because you've left Lincoln High School where you've always played, and now you've got to go and play in a school that you don't play. So I, I sat out my senior year of football, uh, but was able to go on and play four years of college ball. But I had just become a Christian then, and so... I went off to a college, a Pillsbury College at the time. Back in those days, it's no longer in existence. But we played Division Three football, which was nice. And so I was able to continue playing football, but was in that college where I memorized John 3.16. So while everybody else could find every verse in the Bible, I was still using the index to find out where that chapter was in the Bible. But that's where my Christian growth began, was actually at a Christian college. And to thank the Lord for it, because it was there that God worked on my heart, and then went from there on to Central Baptist Theological Seminary. From there, I followed your pastor. I went into the youth ministry in 1970. Imagine that. 1970, I became a youth pastor at Fourth Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where I served for four years while I finished my master's degree. But all the time, I had this itch to take all this education. time I was done with it, there was nine years of it, and go out and see if it actually worked. You know, so I had, I had four years of college, then I had five years of, of in seminary working on the MDiv, and then uh, going on for the THM, and then deciding about three-quarters of the way through the THM, I had enough of it, nine years in higher ed. As it is time, I actually find out, you know, does my education, you know, does this pay any dividends when you actually get out there in the world? And so I resigned as a youth pastor, where I had 250 young people, and uh, moved from that area. It's a large youth group. We had 600 youth in the, from 7th grade to 12th grade, and I had the division of the 250 young people that I cared for in 7th, 8th, and 9th grade. So that was my youth pastor experience. But I left that experience, left the seminary. I graduated, left that ministry, and moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where we had 11 people who wanted to start a church in Lancaster, and that became our first church plant in 1974 in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, called Calvary Baptist Church. Still there today, still functioning, still ministering. And uh, that's where we began a church planting ministry, like the Shepherd's Network, but long ago in that single church. And then we started churches out of that church, five churches in total from that church that we were able to see started, where we took members out of our church uh, because they were driving 35 miles and started a church closer to their township or an area we weren't going to reach with the gospel. And so uh, that's where kind of the dream started. And then walking through life in many different divisions and things, 50 years later now, I'm here at the Shepherd's Church where uh, I'm privileged to work with some really good men like Steve Stadmiller and others who work in our committee on what we now call the modern version of the Shepherd's Network. And it's in that modern version now where uh, we are looking at uh, these, uh, uh, you know, 17 churches now, of which 14 
are now independent. Now, I say 14, two go independent next month. Cheyenne, Wyoming, and uh, we have an Asian American church we started in downtown Raleigh. We have 100,000 Asian Americans that make America their home in Raleigh. And uh, so we've started a church there, and they're going independent next month, So, which is nice. That's what we like to see. We want our churches to come to independency. We want you to get to the place on your own where you're self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating in your community to bring the gospel in these days and these ages. Now, I said we build everything on four basic values, and, and we take them right out of the Jerusalem church. I mean, let's face it, we've had 2,000 years to mess church stuff up. You know, the Jerusalem church had very little time to mess anything up. And so if anybody had it right, I think they had it right, you know. Uh, Not that we would follow into some of the charismatic ideals that are there, uh, you know, because those have ceased. We got the whole council of Scripture, so we don't worry a lot about that stuff. But there are four values that we hold dear to us, and they started, if you remember, uh, when Luke came to the end of that great message in chapter 2, and... uh, he mentions this great reality of the church forming there in Jerusalem. And it, it's quite a formation when you think about it. I mean, you go six months before the crucifixion, you're in Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus says what? I'm going to build my church. Most unique thing he ever said in his ministry was, I was going to build my church. He didn't say it until six months before his crucifixion, and he was way up in Caesarea Philippi. And the first one that would really take identity would be in the city of Jerusalem itself. And then you have the crucifixion, and you've got him three days in the grave. He raises from the dead. you got him 40 days on the earth. So you got 43 days out from his crucifixion, six months before the time he said, I'm going to build my church, and you come to what? You come to his ascension, which was approximately seven days before Pentecost, because Pentecost is what? 50 days after Passover. So if you put the Passover together and put all the dating together, you know, you're basically 50 days after the resurrection, you know, or after Passover, really, because the resurrection is three days in. So 40, you got what? Not that many days, really. 43 days that Christ walks upon the earth. You know, three of them he was in the grave, but uh, you got 40 days on the earth. And then seven days after he ascended at the Mount of Olives, remember he told the disciples, get back to the city, stay in the city, wait till the Holy Spirit comes, and then whammo, it's all going to happen, right? So 120 individuals, they gathered in Jerusalem, a small group, comparison to the population, gathered there. And uh, seven days later, Peter is preaching, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and you have the establishment of the first church. Now, we got almost 2,000 years of history of this continuous establishment of ministry. Now, what was unique about that first church? Well, there were four things, if you remember, that characterized it. And he picked it up there. Remember, Luke, when he was done, he came down to about verse 42. If you remember the verse, uh, well, in verse 41, he said, Then they that gladly received his word. Remember? I mean, their, their first inauguration into church growth was... You know, that nice group of individuals that were there. About how many? 3,000. Can you imagine baptizing 3,000 and having 3,000 new members, you know, to your 120? So we went from 120 to 3,120. But it's what, Paul, what Peter said about that church that's important to us today. Because he, he laid out four basic commitments for that church. Remember he said to that church, he said, didn't they, that after the, he put that together, he said, and he said, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, I'm not going to go into all the Greek terms here for you because we'll do the Hebrew terms in the 119th Psalm, but let me just give it to you quickly. He said they started with the apostles' doctrine. In essence, right there he said that this church must be committed to something. It must be committed to theology. 
He said, this church will be built on its theology. In fact, he said it would be a steadfast relationship. It would be a continuous relationship. It's great participial work in the text. And he said, but you will be a church that's committed to its theology. And so, in essence, what he was saying, truth was going to matter. And that was going to matter, this church. But he also said they're going to be committed to something, not just a theology, they're going to be committed to koinonia. It's a little word that we take from the Greek, which means fellowship, you know, to the fellowship. That is, not only was this to be a church committed to theology, it was to be a church that was going to celebrate itself as a community. What you are is a community. And that is to be celebrated. In essence, what Jesus taught through Peter there is that the church as a family is going to matter. And it doesn't matter how big it is. If it's this size, or someday when you're 100, or someday when you're 200, or someday when you're, when you're 1,000, or whatever God would so choose that you would become, you must always be a family. Because it was Peter who said that it is going to be a koinonia. It's going to celebrate itself as a community. He went on and said they would break bread and there would be prayer. And then he brings in the Lord in admonition. If you work through the verses in 43, 44, 45, and 46, he gives this mention to the Almighty. He doesn't escape from it. He puts us into a communion involvement. He puts us into a prayer involvement. He also distinguishes God himself in the accord by which they are to relate to the God himself. So if you looked at it as a value, we would say they were to be a church that would cherish deity. They would cherish deity. So here was a church not only committed to theology, celebrating community, but cherishing deity. Or what we would say is, they can't be a church unless God matters. Now, believe it or not, we have a lot of churches where you could remove God and everything would go on just as good next Sunday as it did the last Sunday. But not true for a church that's going to be a church from this side of the story and from this textual rendition. That is, you're going to have to cherish deity as a church and what that means and how that comes together. And then he finished it all off in verse 47, not to lose touch with something that's dear to my own heart because I came out of that area. And that is, here was a church that was committed or connected to humanity. You know, if it wouldn't have been for a born-again individual who remained connected to humanity, I wouldn't be maybe a Christian. I understand all the things about the divine will of God and I know what election is and whosoever and put all together and I'm not going to bore you with all that right now theologically, but... You know, in the end, I lived in a lost community. I never darkened the door of a church till the day I got saved. I never went to a church activity. I would not have done that. It wouldn't have been in my forte. It would not have fit with anything I was doing as a human being at 18 years old. It took somebody in a church to come into humanity, get connected with it, and discover me. And there to be a witness for Christ. And of course, our desire is to see your church do what? Not you become an isolated castle where you throw a rock over the wall once in a while to let the world know you're here. But instead, to actually be a church that follows what verse 47 is all about. The Lord added the church daily what? Such as we're being saved. There is nothing like the cry of the newborn babe in Christ. We just started a church in Madison, Wisconsin in June. Next week, they'll baptize their first three converts. Now, it's a church that's growing. There are Christians who want to come to our, that church and be a part of that church. It's called Grace Evangelical Church of Madison. 
but they're going to baptize their first three. There's just something about it. Now, I didn't say the baptism saves. I said that the baptism is the right that follows salvation. But they're going to baptize their first three, and they're thrilled to death about it. we got a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. They're going to baptize their first two uh, that have gotten saved. That's a thrill. The Asian church, I was just recently there to watch them baptize four adults who had come to Christ and had gotten saved. Now, that's what it's all about. In fact, it's all about all four of these things. When we look at a church, we look at a church and simply say, you know what, if this church is going to be what it wants to be or should be, truth is going to have to matter, family is going to have to matter, God is going to have to matter, and the lost are going to have to matter. We're doing very little in our communities today, folks. In fact, most of our communities look at us as not even being valid. We play such a little role in the unsaved community anymore. But you have an opportunity in a newness of blood at Redeemer to reach into the community that you design. Now, we usually look at a community at what we look at is a a 40,000 strong. When we look at you, we don't say to ourselves, well, we're going to reach Atlanta. It's just too big. If your goal is to reach Atlanta, you'll reach nobody. But if you decide where you're actually going to be and say, who are the 40,000 people that live closest to where we're actually going to be? And who are the 10,000 inside that 40,000 that actually live almost on our doorstep? Then that really becomes your Jerusalem. And so we, we actually look at, when we look at the lost, we don't look at a gigantic community. What we'd rather see is that you actually build a, an excellent church among the 40,000 that you honestly can find the time and the marketability to really reach into their lives and be a part and be connected with them, you know. I mean, with every funeral director and every rotary member and all the different areas that exist and your, your company relationships, your neighborhood relationship, if you just reached into that area, you'd be surprised you can build a church. Now, if you want to build a church in South Atlanta, fine. Just start another one. That way we have grandchildren. Amen. And we would love that. So when we look at church planning, that's kind of how we do. Now, later you'll be able to ask any question you want of me of thoughts that are there. As I said, we're not coming in to create a denomination. The sacrifice of our people to support this ministry and the prayer support of our people. Uh, you, every Sunday, have 3,000 people who are being made aware of your ministry in this area to reach the area that's going to be designed for you to reach for the cause of Christ, you know. And they're going to give sacrificially to ensure that we make sure that your pastor and his family and that this ministry can accomplish the task that's before it until the day through this process. It's only three years long, by the way. We, we, we do these in three-year windows where we stick with the work for three years or up to three years. We started a church in Savannah, Georgia. One year after we started, pastor called me on the phone and said, we're done. We're making our budget every week. Things are looking good. We got a building. We're all right. That's all it takes, by the way, is a phone call. There's no uh, how much we owe you or anything like that. No, the greatest thing you can do for, for us is do it for the Lord. Reach this area for Christ. Build a great church that will be a light and it will be salt in a community. And uh, you have fulfilled all the satisfaction that we have in what we call the Shepherd's Network. So that, that's a brief introduction. Now with that, go to the 119th Psalm and we'll get, we'll get out. That's all advertisement. 
you know, of whatever value it is. But uh, come back with me to the 119th Psalm, because I do want to share, I mean, not to say that Acts chapter 2 was not the Word of God, it certainly was, but uh, I didn't preach on it. I just wanted to share with you the four values at every church we look at, those are the things that drive us. Those are the things we look at. Those are the things we'll look at in your pastor's ministry. Those are the things that we'll evaluate as we watch the church grow and mature and make decisions and get the different things that are going to take place. We always go back to those four values. That's how we strategize. That's how we set our vision. Everything we do, we don't say, well, if I get one and don't have the other three, hey, I'm one-fourth away. No, we say, no, all four have got to be there. They're always there. That is, well... While God is being cherished, the lost still matter. So all of it is looking at how do we bring this about, just like that early church in Jerusalem, which most historians believe grew to over 50,000 when it was finally dispersed by persecution. So that's a pretty successful church. Well, you know there's a better word for it. That's a pretty effective church. Success is kind of a loose cannon. But effective is not a loose cannon. So anyway, with that, I want to share something with you that's more individual today. Because well, you, you can ask me anything today. And, there, and if I don't have the answer, I'll call Steve and he'll have the answer. So no. <laughs> but uh, anything we can help with, we, we would be more uh, than glad to help on it. The 119th Psalm, and we're going to be in verse 9 through 16. And if you've ever studied this psalm, the reason I go to this psalm when I had mentioned that the second area I wanted to look at was not just the church as a group when we take those four values, but the church with each individual that's involved. And I wanted to go to the 119th psalm when I thought about doing this because the 119th psalm, as you know, is divided up according to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And every eight verses is behind at least one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Probably it was set up in the early days of its writing as a memory system, whereby you could easily memorize these verses in order because it's a unique psalm in the sense it's the only enlarged psalm or portion of the Old Testament that's dedicated to only one theology. And that theology is bibliology. That is, it is a psalm about the Bible. If you work your way through this psalm, and it's 176 verses long, and those little epitaphs are eight verses each, related to one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, you're always going to be discussing basically the same subject, or whatever you do discuss, it's going to come back to your Bible. It's going to come back to the value of the Holy Scriptures. Now, I started saying that this is very individualized. Now, why did I say that? Well, if you start looking at this psalm, and let's say you start with the first letter of the alphabet, Aleph, for the Hebrew alphabet, and you look at the first eight verses that are put under Olive, you'll take notice if you could look at it, and you could see it probably in English, but uh, uh, you'll see that the first three verses are third person. And the funny thing is, you'll probably never see it again for 176 verses. He starts out in the third person. He deals in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. Thus what he's dealing with, he's generalizing his audience. And when you have a generalized audience, what's easy for us that are in the first person? Well, to take it as sleight of hand, you know. If I said, everybody looks good here, none of you are going to take it personally. Besides that, some of you look a lot better than the other ones, you know. But if I took it individually. But if I put it in the third person, we don't always respond as easily. But oftentimes, we establish premise, or God establishes premise by using the third person. 
Well, the third person is only really used in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 176 verses. Now, you go to verse 4, and it's the second person. And just to save some time, the second person is only used in relationship to God through these 176 verses. Now, it's not used that often as well. But whenever it is used in the 176 verses that make up this psalm, it's always in reference to God. So you got third person, one, two, three. You got second person, verse four, and then five, six, seven, and eight. What do you think he uses? Okay, the first person. And he'll never stop it. That is, he starts it in verse five, and he stays in the first person to the end. All the way to the end. So this is a psalmist who is basically saying, what I am writing under inspiration of God has affected me individually. And what I am writing is for you individually as a person. So he puts that all together. Now, he introduces the psalm, and I wish I could show you to you because it's so beautiful in Hebrew, but when he puts these eight verses together, they're not the introduction. He's making statements. There's statements that are third person. And then he definitely has to bring God into the picture, so he does that in the second person. But it's a psalm for the individual. That is, everything you're going to learn is for you personally. And he starts it by just generalizing some statements through eight verses. Then when you get to verse 9, you actually get to the introduction to the psalm. 9 to 16, those eight verses, under the bailiff, under the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is actually the introduction to tell you what the rest of the psalm is going to be all about and how it affects you as a person. So everybody in this room could leave this room to a separate room by yourself, and this psalm would be about you. You'd never have to worry about, oh, this is for, you know, for David in the other room or, you know, or for pastor in the other room. No, you'd never have to worry about that. Why? Because you'd be in the first person, and you'd know he's talking to you. And so it's a beautiful psalm that really helps us about life. Now remember, it's in the Old Testament context. So we got all the beauty of the New Testament to help build upon it and fill in all the valleys. But it's got some wonderful literature to it. Just look at the way he starts it. And you probably have memorized some of these verses. If you've been in Awana or something like that, you definitely memorized verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart, right? And we're going to look at that. But anyway, let's take this psalm from its premise. He says with a question, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? The introduction, think of this. For a psalm that's got 176 verses, his introduction begins with a question and an answer. An apodosis, prodosis, we call that in, in language. But he puts it together and he says, wherewithal shall a young man, so whoever this individual is, he is a young man, right? And he said, shall he do what? So he cleanses way. Now the word way is an interesting little Greek word, or no, it's an interesting little Hebrew word. Be where you are, Al. Anyway, it's an interesting little Hebrew word. It actually is the Hebrew word that means a line drawn between two significant points. That's the word. Or what he said was, wherewithal shall I, a young man, keep the line drawn between two significant points clean? He's asking God. He's in the first person. He said, I got an issue. The issue is my life. That's the line. And he said, this line is drawn between two significant points. And he said, I want to know how to keep it clean. Now, if you knew the Hebrew, it would tell you he's not at significant point one. And he's not at significant point number two. He's down the line someplace. He's already lived part of it. But he's asking, how do I keep the rest clean? 
Well, historically, doesn't that make you look at it and say, wait a minute, who is this guy? Where is he in his life that he would ask such a question so personal? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, first 25 years of my ministry, I preached that it was David and had great illustrations that related to Bathsheba and the sin with Bathsheba and the Psalm 32 text, you know, where David says, my mouth became like cotton and my bones waxed like I was an elderly man and I, I, the drought of light was lost from me. Remember David saying that in the 32nd? He was ready to give up life. Why? He wouldn't confess the sin, remember? But then you get to Psalm 51 and what happens? It all breaks out. You got the beauty of this confession and he comes before his God and he gets cleansed. And that's where you say, ah, this is David. Right after getting cleansed by God, he's looking back on his life. He's seeing the terrible, terrible lapse when he fell into sin with Bathsheba. And now he comes to his God and he says, God, I've made a mess of this line drawn between two significant points. I don't know how much is left. But whatever's left, I want to keep it clean. So how do I do it? Now, that's the first 25 years of my ministry. The second 25 years, which leads up today, is I believe it was Daniel. Now, you say, why would you say it was Daniel? Well, because the 119th Psalm actually has a number of historical references that don't fit with David. Now, don't get mad at me, you know, because if you get to heaven, it's David. Who cares? You're at least in heaven, amen? So, but uh, what's the deal here? So... You know, and I won't be bothered either, you know. Oh, I'll say, Daniel, you wouldn't believe what I was saying. But anyway, <laughs> you yeah, know, but it fits. Uh, if you look at the historical record, it's all through the 119th Psalm. You cannot, you start looking, you say, wait a minute. Remember in 605 B.C., as a 16-year-old boy, Daniel was taken captive into Babylon. You read Daniel chapter 1, and you got a life being threatened. He's being faced with every issue to take everything he's got in his religious life and turn it over to the Babylonian religious structure. And remember, Daniel has to take a stand. Now, if you take the historical sections, there's not that many, but they're in the 119th Psalm. I promise they're there. There's no character in the Old Testament they fit with in Daniel. And Daniel did some writing. Would you not agree? So if you look at it that way and you think of it being Daniel, and Daniel is down the line, and he's saying, God, I'm faced with every trial that humanity can push my way. I don't know if I can survive this. How am I going to stay clean? I'm no longer in Israel. I'm a captive. I'm being forced to do things that are totally opposed to all I believe as a Jewish boy. How am I going to survive this? So he goes to his guy and says, we're with all. I'm still a young man. He's only 16 when he got taken captive, 6 or 5 BC, in the first captivity. How am I going to survive this? So he says, wherewithal shall I as a young man keep the line drawn between two significant points? Now, I'm going to tell you what I think those significant points are. And I'm going to tell you that I only think what I think they are. It's a Hebrew word, carries that identity. But could it be that what we're talking about is everything between faith and sight? I mean, for 18 years of my life, I didn't have life. I was dead in trespasses and sins. But when by faith and reception of grace I became a child of God, I began a significant life. I got saved. That's a point. That point's going to end when it turns to sight. Now I said, I think. I can't prove that. I can only tell you that the Hebrew word gives this identification. That it's a line drawn between two significant points. And I can tell you that the individual making the statement is down the line a bit. 
Now, there's something else I know about this person. Let's say it's Daniel, and I'm just going to say it's Daniel for now on, okay? If you think it's David, hey, God bless you, preach it. But because uh, it doesn't tell me, and I don't know who it is, but it's got to be either Daniel or David. I'm convinced one of the two, right? Now, when you get to heaven, you're going to find out I'm right, okay? But anyway, but no, I, I, I don't mean that. But take, take the thoughts that there. Go to verse 10. Because verse 10 actually is, in grammar, it connects to the question. That is, the writer tells us about his attitude in coming to God and saying, how do I keep the line drawn between two significant points clean? Because I am up against it. Now notice what he says. He says, with my whole heart I sought thee. There's a sincerity there you won't find anyplace else. Those words talk about absolute sincerity. Daniel is saying, Lord, when I came to you this question, how to keep this line drawn between two signal points clean, I come with all my heart. Everything that makes up my being. See, they're connected here. This is not just an isolated verse you memorize. No, this is the author saying, with all my heart, I'm not fooling around here. I desperately want the answer to this. Now, he not only comes sincerely, notice, he says, Oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. He comes on selfishly. I mean, if it is Daniel, we're, we're talking about a, a premier Jewish young person. If we're talking about David, we're talking about the king of Israel. Either way. But let's keep it with Daniel. So he says, I offer you to take over my life. Take, take the power away from me. He says, oh, you. He changes the tense. Oh, you. Don't let me wander he already recognizes his susceptibility to what he's dealing with. And he said, would you just take over my life? Like that song, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. You know, it's, it's that unselfishness when we put our life into his life and say, would you please take over? And whether you're an individual believer or whether you're a part of this church as an individual believer, in the end, it's going to demand the same sense. You have a line that's drawn. Every one of us have a different life. You know. And there's a great story with that life. And every one of you today are somewhere down the line on that life. And every one of you, if you are in Christ Jesus, you should be conscientiously concerned of the cleansing of that line between those two significant points and maintaining it. Let me just, with conjecture, say from faith all the way to sight. Because we're just as embattled today, wouldn't you agree? I mean, it's coming from every direction, you know. And sometimes there is so much in the culture coming toward us that we're tempted to isolate. I mean, we're tempted to build a castle, not a church. And as I said, throw a rock over once in a while just to let them know we're here. But that's not what God called us to do. But you'll never accomplish it as a church until you're willing to accomplish it as individuals who make up the church. And so he asked the question. I said, well, okay, what's the answer to the question? You go back to verse 9. You got the attitude. Now you go back to verse 9, and what does he say? He said, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. He said, you take heed of the word of God. Remember we said theology matters? He made it a biblical issue. It was by taking heed to this word of God. There's nothing mystical about Christianity. There really isn't. Why? Because it's in the volume of the book. Now, I, I know there's something in faith, there's something that I don't fully comprehend, that in my 
my very soul, I have a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. I don't know if you, I can't comprehend that. I don't really comprehend what they call the moving of the Spirit of God. Now, I only think of that moving in the context of Ephesians 5.18, you know, where you have that neat little Greek word where it says, allow the Spirit of God to be constantly in control of your life. Much better translation than the old King James. But anyway, you know, you put that together. But do you really comprehend that unless you relate it to what you know? In fact, that's what Paul said in Romans 12, did he not? He said, be not conformed to this world. That's the pressure point. But be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. When it comes to the mind, it comes to this book, the Word of God. He left this book for a reason. Even Jesus, remember he was dealing with the Pharisees and they were all messed up anyway. And he was dealing with them. Remember what he said to them? He said, search the Scriptures. For in them ye think you have eternal life. He said, the problem is you're not searching. You went to the Scriptures, you find out you're as wrong as the day is long. But he brought him to the Word of God. And here was the answer. The relationship to the Word of God is absolutely essential for any one of us who are going to maintain that line drawn between two significant points called our life. And yet, we get no value from it lest we come sincerely and unselfishly just like the writer of the 119 song. Now, I said there are eight verses that make this up. So there's actually a beautiful outline here. That is, how do you take heed to the Word of God, right? I mean, make the rubber, touch the road, get it going. You know, you always got to have an outline. Well, let me give you four ways to take heed to the Word of God that are in the text. The way of memory, the way of speech, the way of study, and the way of enjoyment. They're all there. Let's just quickly look at it. What time we got here? We okay? We're all eating here, right? As long as I'm talking, we're not eating. So <laughs> let me just finish it, okay? But, and, and, and what it is, it's for our personal value. We, we want to build churches that from the spiritual out thrive for Christ. Where you're discipled constantly, thus you will disciple others. So in this sense, we start with the way of memory. Thy word have I hid in my heart. You all love that verse, right? I didn't memorize that until, what was I? I was probably 19 or 20 years old when I memorized that. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. I had no idea the depth of that verse. Thy word, you know what that is. It's the word of God. What have I done? I've hid it. Now there's the key word. Why? Well, it's a word that means in Hebrew, if you take this, this kind of a participial verbial usage, it means something I've done in the past so that when the future becomes the present, it's available to benefit me. That's exactly the Hebrew idea. He's saying, I took the Word of God in the past. And where did I put it? I put it in my soul. Why? So that when the future would become the present, it would be available to benefit me. Remember we started out with the idea of cleansing? How does he finish verse 11? That I might not sin against thee. So what do I do? I take the Word of God in the past. I put it in my soul because I know nothing about the future. But when the future becomes the present, that Word of God I put in my soul in the past is available to benefit me. It's kind of like this. Uh, I have two kids. Now, they're not kids anymore. They're, 
My son's almost 50. My daughter's, I think, 48. But when they were little, we would have our... You remember when you have your children when they're little, you know, and you, you have to come up with these little things to do with catchy phrases to get them to do it without being miserable. You know what I mean? And, you know, we, had, we, we would do our alone with God in the evening with our children before we did horizontal time. Well, horizontal time meant they were going to bed, you know. But uh, if they just went to bed, it was a problem. But if you called it horizontal time, you could have fun with it. So, you know, my wife, by the way, came up with these things. And so we, we'd have our alone with God. And when, when we would do our alone with God, uh, we did the ABC memory book. You know, uh, you may have memorized. Uh, remember, the ABC memory book was you had for every letter of the English alphabet, you had a verse to remember. Like A was... All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, uh, C was great. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. You know, you got to that one real quick, you know, and you had these verses that you would uh, memorize according to one letter in the alphabet. And so when our kids were, each one of them were two years old, we started their memory program where they would memorize one verse for each letter. And let, let me tell you, you get to X and Z, it's pretty tough. You're, you're making up a few. This book kind of made them up, but anyway. But uh, you, you, you're working through them. And, and both of our kids, by the time they were four years old, both of them had memorized one verse for each letter of the alphabet. So they had the English alphabet and a verse in relationship to it. it took us two years with our alone with God before horizontal time to work on this together on that. But they got that. And, and, and they, they knew nothing about those verses. They didn't know what they meant. They didn't know what they were for. All they knew is mom and dad got very excited when they could recite them. You know, we'd be in a grocery store, you know, going down, pushing a cart, and I'd say, give me the letter A, you know, and they'd, you know, they'd pipe out, you know, all have a sin and come short of the glory of God, and we'd be doing, you know, both of us a dance around the cart, you know, in the grocery store, you know, because they could give that verse back. But when my daughter was four and a half years old, it was, uh, my wife was at a, at a women's meeting at church, and so I was doing Alone with God that night. And uh, when I finished with Alone with God, my daughter said to me, she said, Daddy, I want to get saved. Oh, she's four and a half years old. And I said to her, I, and, and I wasn't trying to be difficult. I just said, Rebecca, why would a four and a half year old little girl want to get saved? Now, what do you think her answer was? It's the honest truth. She said, Daddy, it's the letter A. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I'm a sinner. Now, it wasn't just that verse alone, but it was two years in children's church and her little Sunday school and things like that and preschool and all these things where she was learning truths and she started to put all those truths together and when she was four and a half, she became a child of God. Now she's 48 years old and if you want my daughter Regna to say, hey, when did you get saved? You know what she'd tell you? I was having alone with God with my dad before horizontal time and that night I got saved. I asked the Lord into my heart, and He saved me. Think of it. Thy word have I hid. I took the word of God and I put it in my heart, even when you don't know what you need it for. But I put it in my soul. Why? I don't know what tomorrow brings. But when that future becomes today, that word of God's available to benefit me. That what? That I might not sin against thee. Have you ever wondered why the, the only imperative in the context is in, is in verse 12? Blessed art, it's a command. Blessed art thou, O Lord. I mean, do we not bless the Lord a lot better when the heart's right? When everything's good with God and us? And that's how that verse falls together. He says, now just bless the Lord all my heart. You know, well, let's go on. Okay, we got the way of memory, putting the Word of God in my heart. We got the way of speech. 
thy word. What? Well, no, how? I better look it up. Okay, so I get it lost here in this verse. He said, uh, with my lips, verse 13, have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I remember an old evangelist one time. His name was Glenn Shunk. Anybody remember old Glenn Shunk? He used to preach down here all the time. But anyway, Glenn Shunk said, you either give the word of God out or you'll give it up. Thy word have I declared. I mean, he's talking about taking the Word of God and declaring it. He's asking us in a Hebrew context to broadcast it, to share it. I don't know what it is about, you know, if you want to get rid of being a jellyfish Christian, best way to do it is talk about Christ with somebody else. It'll put some still in your backbone real quick, let me tell you. But we need to be witnessing. We need to be using our lips to share the Word of God. If you're going to be a great church, if you're going to be a church that's going to fulfill the vision that God set for the first church, then you're going to have to be a church where you are the individuals who use your lips to share Christ. You know, you can walk around and hope the world can just take a look at you and know uh, something different about that guy. I need to be like him. Somewhere you're going to have to talk. Somewhere you're going to have to sit down and say, yes, you are light. Yes, you are salt. But you also hold the message. And you need to open those doors and you need to go to them. Don't wait for them to come because, like me, I would not come to you when I was lost. I wanted nothing to do with you or what you are a part of. You had to come to me. Maybe that's why the Bible does say, as you are going, disciple all nations. It's because while we're on the go, we take our lips. You want a shallow Christianity? Close your mouth. I'm being honest. But as a church, God's calling you together because there's a community that's lost. That's got a lot of people like me living in it that need Christ. And you may be the only lighthouse, the only piece of salt they're ever going to cross the trail with. Now, no matter what your theology is, if you're a Calvinist or Arminian or somewhere in between, you know, maybe you're five or four or three or two counts, whatever it is, you never lost your responsibility that because we're in Christ, we've got something to share. Something that's important to every human being. I mean, look at it this way. Think of it this way. An unsaved person who lives in this life and dies, this is the best they're ever going to get. This is it. Everything beyond this is a total loss. For you and I in Christ, this is not the best. The best is still waiting for us. But those lost people... They don't know that this is the best they're ever going to get. And when we look around, is it really the best? I mean, think about it. Now, don't get me wrong. We, God has blessed us in this country, has He not? I mean, this weekend I've been to a Georgia basketball game, a Georgia football game. I'd say I had a pretty good life the last two days, amen? <laughs> now, none of it's going to get me to heaven. But with my son, just an enjoyable time, two Christians and a... Stadium, 97,000 crazy people and, and a few student fans. But uh, anyway, who aren't crazy. But, uh, you know, but just a great time. It's a great time of life. But if that's all I've got in life, that's it. Boy, I tell you, that's, I, I don't want that to be the best. I don't want it to be best for my neighbors. So with our lips. I, I, let, let me move on to uh, down a, a verse or two, and then we'll come back to two verses because he mentions it's twice. But go to verse 15. I will meditate in thy precepts, have respect unto thy ways. This is the way of study. We're getting there. I'm getting done here in about nine minutes. How's that, Pastor? Is that good enough? Good. Okay, good. 
Okay, uh, anyway, uh, the, the way of study, meditate. Don't you love the word meditate? Now, this is not transcendental meditation. This is not a guru sitting in a dark corner someplace going through a mandarin. All of a sudden, he goes into ecstasy and says, wow, I just met God. You know, this is not what it's all about. What, what does it mean to meditate? It's an interesting Hebrew word. Actually, in some divisions of Eastern languages, they take this word and they translate it cultivator. You know those little discs that the farmer uses when he cultivates a field? He takes this thing out and he breaks up soil with these little round disc things, you know. And uh, that's the word. It means literally, if you want to take the Hebrew, it means run back and forth. What do you do with the cultivator? You run it back and forth over soil. So the idea is you take the Word of God, and what do you do with it in this context? You run it back and forth. Except you're not running it back and forth over soil. You're running it back and forth over your soul. That's the idea. It's, it's, it's a study term, actually. It's, it's uh, For all of us that are in education, it gives us reason to make somebody spend money to come to our school, you know, because it's, it actually means that you're taking information, here the context is the Bible, and you're running it back and forth over your soul. Now, when I was a real small boy, uh, sixth grade, I used to go to my Uncle Frank's farm in Nielsville, Wisconsin, for the summer. Uh, I was sent there, they said, to keep me out of trouble. And what trouble can you get in a farm? You know, when you're farming, you don't have time to get in trouble. You work... You know, I, I, I was, uh, don't take this wrong, I was a stripper. That doesn't mean what you think it means, okay? In those days, you know, you, when you milk the cows, you can't get all the milk out. So in order to get all the milk out, because you can't leave milk in, because if you leave milk in, do you really need all this information? By the way, you know, they get diseased, okay? So you have what's called strippers. A stripper goes behind the milk machine and then strips the cow clean. Well, it's the dirtiest, the worst, it's the ugliest job in the whole barn. You know, we had 100 Guernseys, and so I had to strip 100 Guernseys every morning, every evening, going through. Now, you really get powerful wrists doing it. But, uh, you know, and so that's my job. And plus, doing the farm things, you know, in those days, we had a, we had a, a two-row corn planter, which means you could plant two rows at once. Now they're planting what? 15 or 16 rolls at once, you know. We had a two-roll planter, and it wasn't automatic, so who you think had to sit on the planter because at the end of every two rows, tractor has to turn around, so you have to lift the planter, so what? So that you don't plant seed on the turnaround. Get the idea? It's an old-time farming lesson here, you know. So, but, so I would sit there all day long, lifting, eating dirt from the tractor, and, uh, you know, planting these rows with the planter, lifting it at the end of every two rows to make the turn. So one day I asked my Uncle Frank, I asked him, I said, why, why do we disc? It, to me, it seemed ridiculous going out there just break up land. I mean, he'd spend hours with these discs breaking up the soil. Now, whether this is true or not, but I've always believed it, and it works great in the passage. But uh, he said to me, he said, Alan, he called me Alan, he said, Alan, he said, I do it for two reasons. He says, number one, he says, I'm putting into that soil my whole livelihood, those seeds that are going in there. And he said, when they get in there, he said, they need two things. One, they need oxygen. They're going to go through a death process. But oxygen has got to get to them down in the ground. And he says, number two, I want them to come forth strong where they've not fought for life so that when they grow up into maturity, they've already come through ease and birth, which means they don't break through the crust of the soil. So he says, we break the soil up 
it loosens it, oxygen gets to the seed, and when the seed comes in its early life forth as a plant, it breaks through with ease, so the strength is left for the huge stalk and corn. Well, that's what he told me. You know, it's interesting. You take Romans chapter, what is it? Romans chapter 4. No, 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 not Romans chapter 4. It's Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, he deals with the five walks of life. And he deals with walk different than other Gentiles. It's in that walk. And remember, he talks about the heart. And he says, the heart is calloused and insensitive. You know, as a believer, that's the worst condition you can get into. Is when your heart gets calloused and insensitive. So what do you need to do? Take the divine cultivator of the Word of God. And keep running it back and forth over your heart. It breaks up the soil. Oxygen gets to that spiritual life. And it comes forth in growth. So that realism becomes idealism. That's the word, meditate. It's running God's word back and forth over my life. There's no secrets to Christianity. It's not just a religious movement. It's built on religious information. Now I'll give you the last and we're done, okay? Last one he does twice. He uses the word rejoice twice. So it's the way of enjoyment. You know, I, I've noticed something in life, and I, I've had plenty of it. I got saved in, in June of 1965 when I came to Christ, which is a long time ago, by the way. Um, I've noticed in almost everything in life, whatever somebody enjoys, they never have to be persuaded to participate in it. You know, if you enjoy going to church, nobody has to wake you up to go. If you enjoy reading your Bible, nobody's going to remind you. If you enjoy just talking about Christ, in fact, if you just enjoy the Lord, nobody's going to have to push you to do it. You'll just do it. I mean, these two words, and I'm, to be, I'm not going to give you all the, the minor points because they just drive you crazy anyway, but the, the, the idea there in verse 14, I have rejoiced, and the idea, I will delight. Those are both passive and present. There's one passive, one present. One, he's looking back on what it's brought to him, such joy. And one, he's looking in anticipation, can't wait to get into it, such joy, you know. It's kind of like standing at the gate of Disneyland, knowing how joyful this is going to be when I get in, and then leaving Disneyland, realizing how joyful it was that I got in. You know what I mean? It's the two words of joy used passive in the present. I like that in both different areas. But what he's basically saying is simply this. What you enjoy, you're going to be involved in. And you're going to get everything out of it if you enjoy it. And the greatest joy of having a church like this and growing together in Christ and watching others become a part of it is there is a joy in the Word of God experience that you just got involved in and will continue to be involved in. There, there will be troubled times. There are challenging times. Pastors are going to have difficulties at times. You're going to face them. But the joy of the Lord is still our strength. We can get through anything. Listen, I've seen deer hunters in northern Minnesota go out at 4 o'clock in the morning when it's 4 below zero and walk way back in the woods to climb 15 foot up in a tree and sit up there and freeze to death all day and say, this has been the greatest day of my life. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Amen. So, and, 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 and the only reason I can say that is because I've actually been tempted and done it, you know, and went with somebody and actually did it and froze to death out there and didn't see one deer walk under my tree, you know, so, yeah, you know, and, and still it's the most enjoyable day of your life, right? Yeah. Well, the idea is, you know, we can go through the difficulties beyond difficulties if we have joy. And we should be joyous. I'm not saying there aren't times to cry. 
I, I, there, there are times to mourn. There are. But the joy of the Lord will always come back to us. And this joy is found in the Scriptures. I mean, in some sense, isn't it enjoyable just to walk through a passage like this together and to think these wonderful things that God has laid out that give us such good lessons about life? That's what a church is. That's what it's all about. And that's why we are so thrilled to see Redeemer begin, develop, and grow and mature because my thoughts go not only to you and what you will attain in Christ, but also to others who will come to this Christ and be saved because there is Redeemer Church in the community. That's the real joy of it. All the hardships, all the challenges, and listen, they're going to be there. Things are not getting easier in that world. But we should never, ever allow ourselves to become irrelevant. Any thoughts? That's what I'll share with you. And that's really our ideals when we look at church planning. Yes? Yeah. In fact, I'm saying he did. <laughs> you know, but I can't prove it, except by a few historical references that don't fit with David. And why do we say David wrote the 119th Psalm? Well, because he wrote so many others, right? It's the law of attrition. He must have written it. So, but his name's not on it, you know. So we're kind of sat down to do a study and find out to figure who did write it then. Doesn't matter. It's God's Word. We know that. Amen. Shall we close in a word of prayer? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for these folks. Thank you for their, their bravery, their courage, their willingness, their desire, their heart to build a church that, Father, will center its attention on the Word of God, center its attention on the family needs that they have as a body of believers. Center its attention on Thee, Lord, Thee alone. And Lord, they will center their attention on the lost people that can be impacted by their message and their lives. So I pray You bless this church. We're, we're so thankful to be a part of it. And we're humbled by it, Lord. And so we pray for it, Lord. And we pray often that You'd use it for Your glory. Now, thank you for this time we have together and for the fellowship that will follow in Christ's name. Amen.